Hey, everybody, and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here, and I'm super excited to welcome to the show my friend Jessica Funk. Hey, Jessica. Hey, Emily. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah. So great to have you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Jessica is a dentist in the Chapel Hill area, and we became friends and kind of colleagues at this point, I guess we might say, through the North Carolina Physicians for Freedom Network. And Jessica impresses me in lots of ways, one of which is she is very, she's a very gifted writer, and she's also really good at disseminating data down to where we can understand it. And I felt it very important to dive into the data around the recent emergency use authorization for COVID vaccines for babies and young children, and wanted to just dive into some questions today that we feel that parents may have and um, should ask and give some of those answers that might not be common knowledge as we are constantly fed the narrative that all COVID vaccines are safe and effective for all ages. And um, it's important that we look at the data that the quote, experts have derived those conclusions from. And so thank you again, Jessica, for being here. You're so great at diving into all of this. And um, I know both of us are big parent choice advocates in every sense of the word. And um, again, we're not telling anyone what to do, but what we do think is important is for parents to ask these questions and consider the answers that we have when we really look at the data. So that being said, let's start with the numbers of kids that were involved in these trials and the date ranges that they that that were considered. So we have six month old to four year olds, and there were two separate groups. So we tell us a little bit about that, Jessica. There were 4,500 total children in the Pfizer trial, and that trial was broken down into two different groups of children. You had the six months to 23-month-olds, and then you had the two-year to four-year-olds. And the trial began in August of 2021 when they gave the first dose, and three weeks later, the second dose was given. Mm -hmm. And the trial then was ended September 28th of 2021. And the children were followed for approximately six weeks, at which point in November of 2021, the trial was unblinded and children in the placebo arm were offered the opportunity to receive the vaccine, of which some 57 to 62% of um, placebo participants did, did then receive the two-dose okay. um, trial. And vaccine. explain to us uh, that might not be super familiar with research like this, why that matters? Why I was unblinded or what the, why it matters that yeah. it was unblinded and those kids then got the vaccine. Cause I think some people might be like, Oh, well, that's great. Then all the kids got the vaccine, but what does that from a, from a research standpoint and a trial standpoint, help us understand why that is not the best In, approach yeah, no, that's, when it comes to go ahead. So you've, you've obliterated your control group. And so for only, you've only have six weeks worth of data to understand the significance of a, a novel th therapeutic, something we've never before used in humans. So we don't have any long-term safety information 
on those children because of the unblinding. We don't have a control group to follow up to understand, you know, what could be the significance. And even look, and if you're thinking about it from the aspect of getting COVID, we know that the vaccine loses efficacy over time. And now, since we don't have a control group to see about, you know, how how often children are getting COVID, we've obliterated that arm of the trial. And right. something significant was they were supposed to follow up for at least six months before unblinding, and they unblinded after six weeks. So that do was- we have any? Have we heard any justification about why that was? I'm not, I haven't, but I was wondering if you have. I have not. Uh, the, okay. only, the only thing I could speculate based on some uh, listening to Verback meeting is that the sort of rushing to get it to market because of parents who are, you know, living in fear and wanting to get their children vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So what happened after the two doses? Because so that was um, unblinded in November, 2021. And those yep. participants were vaccinated, even though they were technically not supposed to be. And then what were the results at that point? Well, so something to back up a little bit, you know, in the adult trials, there was a clinical endpoint that they were looking to find. And that was to decrease um, severe cases in hospitalization and death. Well, mm-hmm. since that, you know, that is not a risk factor for this age bracket, there were no clinical, specific clinical outcomes they were looking for. They were looking for um, antibody levels. And what they found in December when they were testing antibody levels is you had the original strain, the Wuhan or the alpha strain diminishing and the Omicron coming on board is that the antibody levels were not sufficient to um, prevent infection. And in fact, they were clinically not evident. And so then they had to sort of scramble together to do a third dose, uh, just as we're seeing in the adult population. Mm -hmm. And and then it was, so that's when they had to sort of come back. Right. So one thing that I think is interesting, um, we kind of talked about the numbers we started with, but when I look at these numbers, we started with in the six month old to 23 month olds, 1,178 receiving the trial that dropped to 277 by the end of the trial. In the two to four year old group, we had 1,835 at the beginning of the trial dropping to 481 by the end of the trial. To me, this seems like a very significant decrease. And I am not a, a, a trial, a clinical trial expert by any means, but just those numbers alone are alarming to me. And I'm wondering if we have any explanation as to why those numbers are so significantly less. And, and of course the placebo kind of followed the same suit and it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm just curious, why do we have any explanation as far as why such significant numbers of participants dropped out? Yeah. So, you know, I've read and listened to a lot of people talk about this and you're basically two thirds of your trial is not there by the end. And there are, you know, and I'm no trial expert either, but they come up with the number 4,500 to have some statistical significance. So when you lose two thirds of your participants, and I say that loosely, because we don't know what happened to them. They don't Mm -hmm. even like to say they dropped out. They just weren't followed up. Well, why weren't they followed up? And there's no explanation 
in the material, the 66 pages worth of material that was provided to the FDA, mm-hmm. you know, just like with the adult trial, there may be some um, request to actually look at more detail from the Pfizer trial data that would give some clarity as to why these 3,000 participants were not followed to the end of the trial. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's talk about the reduction or lack thereof of infection or severe outcomes that we gather from this data. And from what I understand, the 80% efficacy data was based on these trial age groups. The trial stopped after 60 days and some weren't tracked beyond 35, 40 days. Can you help us understand how that 80% was um, achieved? Achieved, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, so you have to go back to your two different trial arms, right? You have the two uh, to four-year-olds and then you have your six to 23-month-olds. And in the um, two to four-year-olds, you had five cases of COVID in the trial arm in that follow-up period. So going back to that follow-up period, the follow-up period, as you mentioned, was like a median of 35 days. Mm -hmm. And, and then you had one case of COVID in the um, trial arm. And then similarly with the six month to 23 month olds, you had um, maybe two cases of COVID in the vaccine arm and um, five cases in the uh, trial arm. So you had a total of, of, of 10 cases that are, we're, we're basing all this criteria on. And mm-hmm. so they use that as a percentage to demonstrate efficacy, that 80%, um, which is not truly a good representation of, you know, with the short window of time that they were followed up. Right. Short window of time and a very limited number of cases. Mm-hmm. And of note, I think it's really important for us to consider that during every other phase of the trial, mm-hmm. there were more cases of COVID in the trial arms than there were in the placebo arms. That's correct. And most significant after dose one, you had a negative efficacy of about 30% in both arms. So basically your child was 30% more likely to get COVID after dose one than if they were unvaccinated. Right. And I. Well, you just say that again, because I think it's one of those things that's really important to drive home. And again, the reason that we do this is that these are not, these are not conversations that are widely available and that especially are put in layman's terms. We all hang out with a bunch of doctors and have to kind of learn how to speak that speak, but um these are, these are things that honestly, I looking at the graphs, I had to have my husband di- like interpret some of it for me because I'm like, okay, what does that thing mean? So, you know, we, we can pull these, these tables and that kind of thing out from the the data, but it's not necessarily put into layman's terms for us very often. But so negative efficacy means that you're more you, likely to get COVID. You are you. more likely to get COVID and so that was after shot one mm-hmm. and but, after shot two. Uh, no, uh, there, the negative efficacy isn't necessarily seen after shot two. Gotcha. Um, 
it, there just wasn't enough to actually prevent the Omicron. All right. So there was not negative efficacy after shot one, but there were more participants in the placebo, or I'm sorry, there were more participants in the trial group that contracted COVID. Well, okay. So yes, that is correct. There were, mm -hmm. um, but there was negative efficacy. So for the babies and the children in both trial arms who got the dose one, between dose one and dose two, that three week period of time, they were 30% more likely to get COVID if they had had the vaccine versus not having right. had it. And then and, after, and, go ahead. And then after dose two, um, the, the negative efficacy was not seen at that point, but there okay. were very, very few cases of COVID. You're, you're dealing with minuscule numbers and um, that doesn't have clinical significance. In fact, if you look at the confidence intervals, which is you know a way of sort of justifying, does this number even have any significance? They're negative. So it basically means that these numbers mean nothing, which is just crazy. Right. And, and also important here, during the trial, there were 12 incidents of COVID recurring, correct? correct? Yes. So that means that people, kids got it two times correct. during this time. And of note, importantly, 11 of those 12 were in the trial group and only one in the placebo group. That's right. And what we don't know about the placebo, again, because the information provided to the FDA isn't as thorough as actually reviewing all of the trial data, is that child who, um, who was in the placebo arm, um, that only that the one trial, there was some suspicion was that were they part of the unblinding and mm. that's when the um but didn't participate in the third shot to be considered fully vaccinated i don't know if that makes sense so that's not clear right but the other the other 11 were in the vaccine arm the trial arm mm -hmm. okay so let's talk about ingredients <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I don't think that people actually understand this. I mean, with, with regular childhood vaccines, um, there are package inserts that if a parent chooses to read them, talk about every ingredient in there, as well as adverse reactions and that kind of thing. And I always yes. encourage parents to read those because I think it's important. And generally, we're not encouraged by, by uh, traditional medicine to dig into that data. But if I were to ask for an insert of one of these emergency use authorization shots, what would I find in there? You would find a very well folded blank piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Nothing and, is on go there. Ahead. Nothing. Right. Right. So there's, we literally do not know what is in there. Or they've, they've said that what, and is it that it's one, is it 10% of the adult dose, something like that? Uh, I, I forget because it's different for Pfizer and Moderna. I know it's three micrograms for um, the children in the Pfizer. Uh, and uh -huh. I forget what the adult, if it's 30 micrograms. Right. That's okay. But it's, and that's really all we know is the messenger RNA and, and that it's, a percentage of the adult dose. And that is basically all we know. Am I correct about that? There's, there, we, we don't know anything else. We don't know what carriers are in there, preservatives, anything. That's right. 
That's yeah. right. Okay, so let's talk about side effects because um, when I what I listened to and and the argument was that these were um, rare and um, and and mild side effects. And here's what I think were recorded by Pfizer and the FDA: seizures, convulsions, respiratory syncytial virus (RSV), right? Bronchitis, pneumonia, appendicitis, gastroenteritis, lower respiratory tract infection, rhinovirus, rotavirus, and anaphylaxis. Yeah. How do we know that these were mild? What constitutes mild? Well, and that's, that we, again, we don't know because they, the um, Pfizer is responsible for their own trial and they just brushed off these uh, incidences as not significant or unrelated, but we don't know the details. We don't have enough information to actually look at and assess, you know, people who would be able to review the information thoroughly and mm -hmm. assess clinical relevance. That's, we're not offered that information. It's essentially a hand wave to these events um, right. that doesn't allow, you know, a parent who is concerned or is trying to use some discernment to really make an educated and informed consent decision. Right. And I want to talk about some of the specific examples that we kind of were able to pull out between the lines, right? Because it, it takes a lot of digging to find these specific examples. But, we, but before that, as a parent, I think for me, the thing that stood out more than anything as I read through these charts and, and statistics and that kind of thing is that 1.4% of participants in the younger trial group experience a severe reaction mm -hmm. and that sounds like a really small number and I think that it's kind of given that way on purpose but that is one out of 71 children that's right and that's if right. I were to line up 71 kids and mine is one of them and we're told one of these kids is going to have a severe reaction and a severe reaction it's very interesting that these are severe reactions that are also called mild that's <laughs> really confusing to me as a parent and I'm just going to consider what do I can what do, what does a severe reaction mean to me am I willing to take that chance and to be honest I saw this 1.4 percent of participants one out of 71 children in that younger trial group having a severe reaction I saw that on zero media yeah. however it's what the trial data said. And I think just to, to put, make that more personal, I know we, we pulled out some specific examples that we, we can find in there. Would you talk about some of those, Jessica? Yeah. So there was a, a four-year-old in the trial arm, meaning they received the vaccine and they were reported to have a severe, a severe adverse event of severe appendicitis within 11 days post two. And they, um, because that child had to have their appendix removed, um, they considered the case resolved on the day that the appendectomy was performed. Mm -hmm. And then there was a two-year-old recipient in the trial arm who had febrile, um, which means a high fever convulsions, 21 days post one and post dose one, excuse me. And that resolved and the child went on to receive dose two. And there was a 17 month old that um, had, was experiencing seizures after the first dose. And mm -hmm. they eventually resolved with that child went on to get dose two 
Um, and all of this was considered, you know, not significant mm-hmm. uh, or, or not, you know, severe enough to kind of, again, the hand waving of these events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we had higher rates of adverse rate of adverse events in the trial arm versus the placebo arm correct um and i mean we won't dive all the way into this but some people are even concerned about what was in the placebo arm because i want to say that (laughs) go ahead no share because you know i mean because if you look at like fever you know because so many things are subjective right and it's really hard when you're dealing with six to 23 month old because you can't ask them questions and even a lot of two to four year olds can't so the most objective uh, data that you have is the fever. And um, they were definitely higher in the vaccine arm versus the placebo arm, but they were inordinarily high in the placebo arm that has a lot of uh, researchers speculating what was really in the placebo. We're, we're led to believe it's a saline solution, but something's not adding up based on, you look at the whole lineup of, of adverse events listed in the placebo arm, something, something is, um, not clear there right and to i think it's important to point out because it could we could look at this and say well you know um kids have weird things happen and some kids are just you know not super well as babies and young children True. Mm-hmm. but am i correct that the kids that were part of this trial would not have had any known medical conditions going into it that I'm not 100% clear. I would assume that they would have picked participants that were healthy. They weren't going to, and I know right. that's true in the adult uh, trials that they right. I can't were. imagine that that from that from for that specific um, criteria that that would be different in kids that we were considering immunocompromised children already. Um, so we can we can assume, not conclude, but assume that these were healthy kids with no known medical conditions. Correct. And one thing, you know, you and I both stated that we're no, we're no research experts, right? We're just reviewing lots and lots of information. But when you're looking at a trial like this of significance, that's um, going to children, one thing that they did not do, which should have been considered uh, in the opinion of a lot of researchers, researchers would be to have withheld other childhood vaccinations throughout the trial period so that you're comparing apples to apples. You know, Mm -hmm. if a child's getting another vaccine at the same time they're getting their trial vaccine or the placebo, you know, there's information there that makes it hard to discern what's really happening. It's an Mm -hmm. unfair assessment of the situation. Right. And that, so you're saying that throughout this trial period, the kids continue to get their regular childhood vaccine. Right. But it's not noted, you know, they're, they weren't Mm -hmm. told to with, with, withhold. Right. We don't have record of, you know, when they got specific shots during that time. And we all know that kids have, you know, can have an adverse, you know, event or reaction to any childhood vaccine, but right. you know, to really understand what was happening in this trial and to have thorough information, those, that is something that should have been, you know, restricted for the right. trial. Right. Well, and, and I would argue that um, in order to have a very clear picture of this too, it, we would need to have follow-up trials combining those vaccines if that's what we're going to happen absolutely because we all know that multiple vaccinations you know can lead to increased adverse events absolutely right and we so that that is not a part of this either so we don't know which combinations might be more risky or less risky or we don't really know that um 
and that like you said that's not included in the data um so we touch actually we touched on this i think earlier a little bit but i think it's important to make it clear that while perhaps the tracking continues it's supposed to you know the again these are emergency use authorizations that we're in a hurry to rush them to market that at this point there was no follow-up after 60 days so we do not have safety data or efficacy data beyond that time correct and you know one thing i think that that should be clearly stated to people who aren't very clear on the definitions and what all this means is emergency youth authorization constitute that an emergency exists mm -hmm. no emergency exists in children they right. do not get severely ill they do not i mean they obviously some children have lost their lives to covid but less than than the rate of the flu mm -hmm. and here we are rushing something you know we don't have long-term safety trials and we're putting it into a population that is not at risk um right that's something I think that parents should understand. And the other thing, just because I talk to a lot of people um, who have no idea, and I don't know if we've touched on this, but there is a 100% liability shield. So mm -hmm. the manufacturers of these products are not liable for an injury to your child. Right, right. And, and I think, yes, very important to point out everything that an emergency use authorization does and does not mean there yes so if your child is injured you there is a separate um what would you call it it's, it's like uh, an entity essentially a government shields the, yes it's yeah. an agency right yeah yeah it's taxpayer money taxpayer money right oh but um, here but this is important this is important to know that's for childhood vaccines right for the others on the list uh, mm -hmm. This hasn't made the official list yet, but right, right now you cannot sue because they don't have, you'd have to have a list of adverse events that were recorded as possible associated with the vaccine. And that does not exist even for the adults. So you cannot, you can't sue for anything because there's not a list of known side effects that they have identified as a possibility associated mm -hmm. with the COVID shots. So therefore, until that, until that exists, they're even using tax the taxpayer based system funded by uh, that's run by our government cannot be uh, utilized. Right. Yes. Um, and yes. And I think that, yes, it, it's important to understand all of these things are, you know, in read between the lines of, of the information that we're fed, which, of course, on, here at Healthy Discourse, this is kind of what we discuss all the time. Um, and one thing that really caught me as I listened to a little bit of the interview, uh, or not the interview, the, um, what do you call, what was the, what is the organization called that when they were reviewing the all the data? The yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And interestingly to me, some of the arguments for these vaccines, which, um, you know, we I, they noted that we don't know long-term efficacy and that likely the Pfizer would would change and then the Moderna efficacy was what was it 50 percent um I I don't I, I'll be honest I did not study the Moderna trial at all okay. I really focused on the Pfizer so I don't know yeah that no but I I want to say that it was right at 50 or just a little under that and I, I meant to pull that out before but what what it seemed to me was 
the those on the panel can their their biggest argument for the emergency use authorization was that parents wanted it. Yep. And to me, there are many parents out there that are trusting these agencies to make their expert decisions about safety that aren't digging into all of these things. They're they're not. They're they're looking for the headline. They're looking to their pediatrician to say, okay, it's now approved. It's safe and effective. Here we go. But when that was what seemed to be the number one argument for why this emergency use authorization was required, it seemed very cowardly to me and that we we are going to step aside from any responsibility we have because parents want this. And I, I found that to be very off-putting when we put so much trust in these agencies, even though, of course, that's eroded significantly over the last two years, that still exists. And many people feel that if, oh, if this is authorized and it must be safe and effective. And when that was the primary argument, despite all of these questions, and there were a lot of questions asked and there were a lot of uh, we don't knows as answered. And, um, but still that was the defense for why these authorizations should go through. And I think that as parents, we should just question if that's a satisfactory answer. Yeah, well, it's not in my opinion. And I think, as you said, it's very cowardly. And it's also, you know, the, you know, who's responsible for instilling all this fear in parents. And they're the same people, you know, now saying, oh, well, since they're fearful, we're going to allow them to go ahead and inject this in their children, even though we don't have enough information to really tell you um, what's around the corner for the child who takes this. Um, And in the Pfizer trial, uh, information, they're already speculating that a fourth shot is going to be needed for these babies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And yeah, yes, I've already heard that too. So um, yes, there's, there's a lot that we should be asking. And I think that these are the questions that we need to be taking to our pediatricians, especially if we feel that we're being pressured as parents, or um, I know plenty of of people who have been vaccinated themselves and are saying, you know, I just want more time to look and see, or my kids have already had COVID or whatever. There's, there's lots of different, um, there's lots of different reasons why people might opt out or desire to wait. And as, as parents and, um, as those who have kind of dug into this data, I think that that's something we can absolutely encourage for parents to stand strong and to know that you're making the best choice for your children and to not feel um, pressured into something that you don't feel comfortable with. And just want to always give parents that encouragement that you ultimately are the ultimate decision maker and expert for your kids. And yes, anything else that you would like to add? Um, I could say so much because there's so much I know. about this I find I, so deeply <laughs> disturbing. Um, I, I, you know, one of the things, you know, a couple of things that just came to mind as we were talking, you know, they lowered the um, effectiveness of the of the vaccine, so to speak, for the children over the adults, you know, that because in the adults, it had to be a 95% efficacy and that drops uh-huh. 
exactly. Which, you know, that should, that should beg questions from people. Why, why can we put an experiment into our child's arm that's proven to be less effective than it was in the adults? And we all, we all know at this point, you know, from living the last year and a half with these vaccines, how ineffective they are. Um, but they also in this, I'm going to read, this is, was in the Pfizer trial. Um, it said the descriptive efficacy data are preliminary because the protocol specified 21 cases had not yet been achieved. So they needed to have, to actually have clinic, clinical significance of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. They needed to show 21 cases of COVID in the follow-up period. Well, there were only 10 total cases when right. they stopped the trial. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that I think a parent could take to their pediatrician and ask, but I, I think very simply that the most simple question to ask would be what, what are the long-term, what, what's the long-term safety data? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that we talked about this earlier, and I wanted to find the statistic because I think it's incredibly important. I have seen in some of my mom groups, some parents saying, well, I'm going to go out and get the Moderna vaccine because it's only two shots and I can get it faster. This is what I just read. So this is what I thought. The vaccine was found to be roughly 51% effective against infection for children under two and 37% effective among children ages two to five. That's crazy. Well, okay. So then the thing I guess I would add to, and then this is one of the reasons why I didn't study the Moderna trial, because there are other nations in this world who don't even allow the Moderna in mm-hmm. people under the age of 30. So, you know, that in and of itself begs the question, why are we doing this? And then we're the only nation in the world even considering vaccinating children under five. And then we have European nations now coming out and saying they regret that they vaccinated the children because of what they're seeing at this point. Yeah. Um, there's, there's so many questions and there, you know, a few, I hope we've given a, enough key points to parents to take to their pediatrician, or at least, you know, have them asking questions before they try this. Yes. And again, ultimately, um, I, I can't say it enough. And I say this all the time, but you are the God made you the overseer of your children as the protector. And you are the ultimate expert in your specific child and a good physician will help to come alongside you in that. And so I always say, if you're feeling pressure to do something that you don't feel comfortable with, you're feeling shame, then it's time to find a new doctor. So I, I, I think those are very, very wise words. Very yeah. wise. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. I'm always so grateful for your expertise. And um, Jessica is just awesome in so many ways. And she's become a great friend of mine. And um We're just so grateful for all the work that you're doing. And um, thanks again for joining me and we'll catch up with you guys next time. Thank you, Emily.